This is The Cole Memo. I'm your host, Cole Preston. Every episode is released in audio, video, and transcript format. To find the transcript, audio, or video version of any episode, please refer to the description of the episode that you're listening to. Within that description, you can find a link that will take you to our website, which will display the transcript for this episode and the platforms where you can find the episode in audio and video formats. If you're unable to locate the episode description on whichever your whichever platform you're listening from, I get it. Every platform is different. So just simply note the episode number and then you can visit thecolememo.com. From there, you can find the corresponding episode. Then you'll be able to find that uh, audio, video, or transcript version. You might also find any links that we reference during the show so that you might be able to do your own research or get connected with cool people like the guest I have today. If you're not listening to this episode of The Cole Memo on Patreon, then you're listening to this episode a bit later than our patrons. To become a patron, go to thecolememo.com slash Patreon. Once again, that's thecolememo.com slash P-A-T-R-E-O-N. It's a great way to support our show, but one of the best ways to support our show is absolutely free. Subscribe to or follow our show. Share it with your friends. Tell everybody about it, favorite it, give it a thumbs up, whatever. Your engagement and support is appreciated. Today is November 21st, 2023. We're approaching Turkey Day. And for all those reasons, I'm thankful to be joined by Kurt Kaufman from Seed Talent. Kurt, would you like to introduce yourself to our audience and uh, tell us where we can find you online? Yeah, absolutely. Cool. Thanks for having me on today. So, um, as Cole mentioned, I'm Kurt Kaufman. I'm the co-founder and CEO of Seed Talent. Um, you can check us out at seedtalent.com or on Instagram at Seed Talent. Um, to give a little bit of background on myself and just the company, um, Seed Talent has emerged as the largest employee enablement or training platform in cannabis. We support over 1,500 dispensaries across 25 states, um, working to really support those frontline professionals, the bud tenders, um, as the vast majority of our audience, really working to bring together all of the training they need into one central hub, um, and then ultimately leveraging data to deliver that training uh, to the right folks at the right time. And I've been in cannabis now going on seven years on the legal side, um, started with Green Thumb Industries as a relatively early employee, kind of worked throughout their business on the sales team, founded their internship program, founded their uh, wholesale and retail customer service teams, um, as well as ultimately launched their cannabis onboarding program, um, which led into the launch of Seed Talent. I'm super stoked to be talking with you today. Longtime listener um, of Chillinois originally and excited for the transition to the Coleman. I think you might be muted, Cole. Thank you. Thank you so much for your support. And um, once again, for folks, it's seedtalent.com. Um, we'll have that link in the podcast description. Um, thank you again for your support. And that's one of the things you mentioned when we first met. Maybe that's where we can start. I was at Benzinga Cannabis Capital Conference. And you know what? Honestly, if I went back through the footage, I might even have the moment where you approached me on tape because I was getting ready to record. So I was doing like a, a sample recording to get like levels and such. And um, yeah, it was just kind of cool because you were one of the first to approach me and make me feel like a celebrity. Like you're Cole, right? From the Chillinois podcast. <laughs> I'm like, oh my God, people know me. So Thank you yeah. for giving me that opportunity to feel cool. <laughs> no, absolutely. I've been a longtime fan. And I think um, 
know, cannabis is super integral to like my entire adult life. Um, and I think what I've come to learn is there's like different voices and dis different perspectives um, that make this community as strong as it is. And I think, um, you know, as I mentioned uh, <laughs> at Benzinga, um, while I don't agree with every take you've, you have, you have some takes that I think are very important um, for the industry. And I think you have a perspective um, and a way of challenging some of the status quo um, that I have found interesting. And um, yeah, so I wanted to introduce myself and see if there's an opportunity to meet. Um, and I appreciate you taking me up on that opportunity. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I would love to get back to maybe some of the things we disagree on because I love to talk <laughs> about those things. But Sure. And for you to, I remember that distinctly for you to bring that up when you met me, I was like, I am looking forward to speaking to you, Kurt, uh, yeah. like, you know, so yeah. thank you for being like kind of on your sleeve about that. But before we get to all that, tell us a little bit more about seed talent. What, what is, what is seed talent and why should people know about it? I mean, I'm assuming it's like, if you're trying to get into the cannabis industry, then you need to know of seed talent to get connected and stuff. But tell me. Yeah. No, that's, I appreciate the opportunity to do so. And that's, um, that's a good kind of misconception, I'd say. So um, yeah. really seed talent was born out of, so as I mentioned, I started on the plant touching side, um, you know, working throughout the business with GTI. One of the things uh, that was my primary responsibility was I was on the sales team that covered the Illinois medical market, and then ultimately the transition to rack. And I think one of the things that became painfully at times obvious is there's a lot of folks that want to work in cannabis, but they fundamentally lack a lot of the cannabis specific knowledge to really add value, um, you know, in their first 30, 60, 90 days, sometimes ever. And so within Green Thumb, launched a cannabis onboarding program, trained about 700 salaried folks for them, and then said, hey, there's a real opportunity if one of the bigger players in the space is having challenges, you know, getting educated staff let's take a look at this market. And when I kind of thought back, I was pretty active out in the market visiting stores. And I think one of the big challenges of our industry is we're frankly, um, as an industry, completely dependent on frontline bud tenders, frontline retail employees to educate the entire country on what is cannabis, how to safely consume it, what are the products, um, how to buy good, better, best, like what is the cannabis shopping experience is right now really being defined in our retail settings. And so when we looked at launching Seed Talent, the challenge that we wanted to solve initially is how do we bring together all of the content that these folks need to be successful, whether it's federal and state compliance training, company and corporate onboarding. That's what most people think training is. Um, but where we really, I think, focus is we do a lot of product training. So in Illinois, we represent about 90% of the brands in the state. Uh, we work with virtually 100% of the dispensaries. We do all the compliance, all the onboarding for a lot of those groups. But one of our big, I think, value adds within the space is we work with the vast majority of the brands to help provide education on who their brands are, what are the products, how to sell it and connect that with consumers and patients all through the, the platform. And while we started in Illinois, we've now got about 40,000 um, cannabis professionals that train through the platform. Last month, we passed over a half a million completions on the platform. Um, so we're getting a lot, a lot of engagement because I think ultimately this is a passion-based industry. Folks are hungry for that knowledge and we're just trying to be the vehicle to more efficiently deliver that. Um, so we, we create better outcomes for our patients, our customers, and ultimately a better employment experience for, for the folks that are working in our industry. Yeah. And so part of this, as you kind of alluded to earlier, I mean, it seems like it touches on all facets, but one thing that you mentioned you wanted to specifically talk about was the role of bud tenders and purchasing products. How does that relate to, I'm guessing it has to do with the information that they learn, right? 
Yeah, big time. I mean, I'm like a big believer that what has made cannabis, aside from just like it being an amazing like plant and like the experience personally, um, in, in terms of like psychological experience being you know, awesome. Um, I think one of the things that draws people into cannabis is the community. Um, and I think a lot of times that word has gotten hijacked with kind of, you know, BS different things that are happening in the space, the community, the community. But the reality is like cannabis is a community in itself. Um, there's no like there's, there's certainly socioeconomic backgrounds and race backgrounds and all these different things. But one thing that I've found, whether it's standing outside of a concert, whether it's, you know, at an industry event, is you can all be bonded over the fact that you love getting high and smoking weed. And I think one of the things that for me was so impactful in that is every step I took in going from smoking out of an apple in a buddy's truck to, you know, advancing to, you know, concentrates and all the other things that ultimately came along the way is someone in my circle cared enough about my consumption, my love of the plant, my connection to the plant to, to make the connection between a product, a strain, whatever it may be, and my use case. And I think one of the things that is a real challenge in our industry right now is both bud tenders at times, as well as corporate leadership, look at that interaction as a retail interaction. And that's like just fundamentally like not what it is. Um, it is a got you know, I look at bud tenders as guides along somebody's cannabis journey. And ultimately they have to stay educated. They have to stay, you know, on top of, you know, just not just the information, but the ability to experience those products, get deeper understandings to ultimately continue to connect people to the right products. Because I think that's like the challenge, right? Is how do we create a bigger tent where, and this is a lot of the stuff that, you, you know, I've heard you talk about um, in terms of exposing the industry, exposing plants, challenging the status quo, like that comes from education and confidence in what, is the cannabis, you know, consumption experience and journey. Um, and so for me, I think, you know, the role we play is really trying to be there to, to provide those folks with the support they need um, to be able to have educated conversations. But the flip side of that is it takes people taking that job seriously enough to understand that they could be the make or break between that customer falling in love with the plant or saying, oh man, that was a terrible experience. I'm going to go back to whatever Western medicine I've been using or no solution whatsoever. Like those interactions I think are that impactful. And, and I think that role from everything from price compression to turnover to industry acceptance really starts with that interaction at the point of retail. Yeah. Very interesting stuff. Yeah. Thank you for breaking it down. And you brought up, uh, price compression i feel like that's maybe where maybe that's where we uh start to disagree um but i wanted to ask as far as what did you mean earlier when you said employee enablement focus before we start getting to that stuff i want to just keep talking about things that i don't already have okay. opinions about i want to yeah. learn you know what i mean no absolutely so employee enablement is a little bit more like so that's a term to a certain extent that seed talent has tried to coin like one of the things that i'm pretty forward about is like um can i swear on this podcast fuck yeah okay nobody <laughs> gives a sh nobody gives a shit about training um like i get that what people care about is the outcome of training um, mm -hmm. which is better patient and customer you know outcomes lower turnover higher confidence in your role the ability to sell good, better, best, and not just sell highest THC to lowest dollar. 
that stuff um, really comes from enabling your employees to have success. And so when we talk with, with leadership and we work with most of the multi-state operators, we work down to single store mom and pops, and it's the same conversation. It's like everybody, it's like everybody conceptually agrees that training is something they should do, but they don't prioritize, they don't pay for it, they don't make the time unless they're actually seeing outcome-based results from those efforts. And so that's a lot of what we do is try to go beyond just the check in boxes of training to can we actually tie those to business outcomes that align, you know, the employee's desire to be more confident to know more, the consumer's desire to have a more educated person on the other side of the counter with the challenges that corporate has with uh, allocating the time or paying for that. And 280E plays a big role in that, that in our industry, because you cannot deduct employee expenses, training is something that normally you'd be able to deduct as, as, oh, an, as, yeah. as a result. And so we really focus on enabling your employees to maximize those outcomes for the business and for your patients and customers rather than training, because training is the thing you do to enable your employees to the outcomes that you're ultimately seeking as a business. Gotcha. Thank you for breaking that down. Yeah. Thank you for breaking that down. Well, that's very interesting. I didn't even think about like how that could come into play. Like they talk about the different ways in which write-offs impact them and how they're not able to write things off. But I didn't think about it in, in a way as traditional as that. Like I feel like most people have started a new job and have had to go through training and may not have even realized that their employer was able to write that training off, right? Yeah. The impacts of 280E, I don't think, can be understated. And between 280E and the limited access to capital that our industry has faced, I think they'll, they'll write books, not a book. They will write books about how many challenges that has created for our industry. And I think training is just another one of those things that you can't write off investing in your people. And yet one of the big industry challenges we have is employees not feeling invested in. Yeah. Well, you'll appreciate this plug, Kurt. Um, anybody that likes what they hear and would like to take advantage of Seed Talent, you can go to seedtalent.com slash demo. Would you say that's correct if they want to yeah. proceed? So if, if you want to proceed and you have a business of any kind, retailer, um, extraction, cultivation, processing, schedule a demo. Um, if And we're making some updates to the website as we speak, and that's why it's kind of uh, white at the moment. Um, but if you're you know, a general consumer, general industry participant, um, you can also sign up for Seed Talent for free. You can get access to over 10 hours of free Cannabis Foundations training. The platform is more B2B focused. Um, so the demo would be more if you're, you're a license holder in any right. way. Um, but you can sign up for Seed Talent, take free courses. I'd encourage the Intro to Cannabis course. It's a two-hour course, and I will guarantee if you know everything in that course, you'll know more than 90% of people who work in cannabis. Yeah. Yeah. So, oh, the new new grown-in email just came out. I need to turn my phone on. Do not disturb. My apologies. <laughs> there we go. Um, Brad, Brad's out there doing the good work. I see Yeah, that. he's doing the good work. I saw cannabis pop up, and I was like, ooh. Yeah. Something. Um, so... Well, cool. Thank you for breaking that all down. Once again, seedtalent.com. Um, yeah, I'm just curious. I've got J.B. Pritzker's, a bit of J.B. Pritzker's speech pulled up from Benzinga that talks about price compression because, of course, it's not it's not that I don't understand it and I wouldn't even call it my critique of the uh, of the industry, but I point it out a lot because it is the 
foundation, I would say, of the industry. Like preventing price compression in Illinois, I feel like is foundational to the success of the market. I agree with that. And I think it's important to align on the definition of price compression. Um, you know, price compression is in theory, um, the compression, the, you know, lowering of prices as a result of oftentimes undue industry pressures, things that are happening that are not necessarily intentional. And that's in the flip side of what a brand is, is, is the brand is in theory, the ability to get incremental margin over and above the commoditized price for a good. And so um, if you, you know, if you get water and water is a dollar a gallon as a commodity, but you buy Aquafina for 250, that an extra dollar fifty is the brand's value over right. and above the commoditized price. Price compression is I think is just important as we talk about Illinois, where um, Illinois, I think some of the biggest challenges with our pricing is not in fact the core pricing. To a certain extent, there's opportunities for efficiencies. There's no question about that. Um, but the biggest challenge I think that Illinois is, is, is getting from the pricing standpoint is our taxation. You know, I mean, to be looking at between 35 and 40 percent on a retail tax is beyond offensive. Um, and I think it's easy to justify in terms of passing legislation. You got to get folks on both sides of the aisle to see value. But once the once the market is you know in a year plus of maturity and the sky has magically not fallen, I think at that point we need to start talking about who do some of these policies serve, and is it the people of Illinois? Um, and whether it's taxation, whether it's the fact that you can't buy medical at every dispensary in the state, right. there's just real conversations I think that need to be have about who's being served by some of these rules and regulations. And the reality is oftentimes no one is, it's just like, hasn't been thought out correctly and mm -hmm. needs to ultimately be addressed. And I think that's some of the work that's really important um, that's going on from a variety of different folks, whether it be yourself, whether it be, you know, Shawnee Williams from Equity uh, you know, Staffing, Illinois Equity Coalition, some of these different groups that are just challenging some of these things where you're like, no one benefits from not being able to buy medical product at every dispensary in the state, right? Like there's just no, literally no one benefits. The producers don't benefit. The retailers don't benefit. Like no one does at this point. Um, and I think the taxation is another piece of that, but the price compression is, is a little bit of a separate thing. Yeah. Let's talk about taxing for just a second. Sure. Oh, wait, wait, taxing. What did I have to say there? Um, it just totally. Oh, thank you. Sorry, I just about I just about lost that one. I have trouble putting this one into words. But sure. to your point, I never. You just said it really. I thought that was really well said. What you just said about taxing and like the idea of who's it serving, who's it helping, like that that whole idea. And again, I'm gonna have trouble putting this one into words. I'm like stealing this from one of my friends who brings it up on the show sometime. Sometimes he basically says like, "Isn't it weird that?" Like we're acknowledging the drug war was like a bad thing. And so we legalized weed, but we're going to tax the people that smoke weed to right the wrongs of the drug war. Do you follow the logic? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it, yeah. You're I right. have trouble putting it into words, but it's like it's interesting how it's like here I am. I don't mean to say that I was mostly affected by the war on drugs because a I'm like acknowledging my privilege and what, all that stuff. But like sure. B like just anybody else that has been through this drug war, it's interesting to think that it's like we're the ones getting taxed because we're continuing, like we're playing by the rule. It's just an interesting. Yeah, no. To it's, your point, it's... though, we've we've been doing these like Illinois Hash Wednesday episodes, 
And as you said, taxes were a way to make this policy proposal more digestible. It's like, okay, yeah, you may not agree with weed being legal, but you agree we all need more tax revenue, right? So for some people, it was just a digestible way to make legal weed happen, you know? Yeah. And I, I, it's an interesting conversation too. I mean, not to get like overly into the economics, but there's, there's, there's like demand economics where like you lower the tax rate, you increase the demand, the revenue generated sufficiently overcomes the reduction. Mm. And that's what you see. Like, I think when people talk and I think Michigan has its challenges as a market, oftentimes people in Illinois are like, man, I just wish this was Michigan. Well, talk to the operators in Michigan two years ago, and they would have told you they would have been anywhere else except Michigan. Um, the market is starting to settle out now. It's advantageous for consumers, but the business owners there really struggle to make sufficient margin. But when you look at the tax structure there, when you look at the tax structure in you know, places like Missouri, that is a lot more conducive and consistent to the way alcohol is taxed and some of these other vice spaces are taxed. And the demand is much higher. Um, you know, Illinois got the advantage that we were one of the first like Midwest states, one of the one of the um, first Midwest states. So we got a lot of cross border traffic that supplemented a lot of, of the revenue. But as Missouri legalizes, as Wisconsin has a proposal that's out there, as Ohio gets to legalization, as Minnesota has legalization, I think we're going to see some normalization in the revenue generated. And there needs to be then at that point, like a real conversation of does a lower you know, effective tax rate ultimately increase the amount of revenue that can be gained? Yeah. Yeah. And um, I want to get back to uh, price compression here in a second. I think I've got a quote that actually pretty well backs up and proves your point and that I think will get us back onto defining what we are talking about with regard to price compression. But just for another moment to stay on our tangent. Yeah. yeah. Um, you mentioned, you know, that Michigan operators or people even maybe in Oklahoma or Oregon would choose to be anywhere but those places. And I get your logic there, but also at the same time, some of those people wouldn't have gotten the opportunity in Illinois. So it's like. That's an extremely fair point. Like I'm a believer in like free market capital, like, uh, you know, capitalism deciding the number of operators that are in the state. I think the challenge is like, how do you maintain patient and customer safety in a unlimited license environment? Oklahoma is a good example where they've had so many issues with, low quality products and mold and things not passing, you know, reasonable testing standards. And I think the challenge that we have to get to is where is there a middle ground between unlimited licenses, yet a barrier of entry that maintains, you know, a quality and a safety standard um, that allows people to purchase with the confidence that they purchase any other products that are out there. Uh, but I don't disagree with you. I think that the how limited some of these limited license markets are is, is very unfortunate. And I think understanding the history of Illinois' legalization and the pilot program and the investments that were made under Rauner by some of these groups um, is an important component to how some of these structures have rolled out. And it's a lot easier in hindsight to you know kind of throw shade. But you know I think one of the things that a lot of people don't realize is when they did the original pilot program applications, there were not even enough people to apply to fill all the applications. Um, GTI, and you can look this up online, GTI gave back a license to the state. Uh, There were other folks that were nervous about fulfilling that obligation because there were 10,000 patients in the program. 
they were giving pounds of flour away and losing, you know, at times hundreds of thousands of dollars a month, which there's privilege, right, in the ability to have enough financial capital to lose money to sit on the sideline. But I think folks don't also realize that, you know, the Illinois program started as a true pilot, that if Ronner decided that he was done with the program, those investments could have gone up, no pun intended, literally in smoke. Yeah. And it just so happened that Pritzker was the next person who got elected and things went the way that it did. Um, but I think in understanding the history and, and cannabis is such a industry so steeped in history that mm -hmm. that's one of the reasons like we start all of our, our intro to cannabis courses with the history of cannabis, emphasis on marginalized communities, emphasis on impact legalization and social equity, but that broader understanding of the history, not just of, you know, national drug laws, but even local and state laws and how they feed into some of the challenges of, of today, I think is really paramount to having a complete discussion on these things. Yeah. Now, I want to agree with you, and I think you're going to be surprised by my agreement at first, and then you're going to see maybe where I'm going on this. I agree with you that maybe like Oklahoma, Michigan, California, Oregon, they've had like what you might call consumer safety issues as a result of the abundance of operators, both legitimate and illegitimate. Um, I think that's fair, but I also think that that, that thrives because of the fact that you have programs like Illinois, but also let's not even use Illinois because let's just talk about states that don't even have weed. That's yep. why it thrives because it's like, well, Jordan Davidson from Smart Approaches to Marijuana and I have gotten into this and he's like, well, they said that illegal weed was going to destroy trafficking, but now weeds just trafficked out of California. And it's like, well, yeah, now they don't have to traffic it over the border. They can traffic it out of a state. You know, what will fix that is legalizing it in your state to supply right. that demand. Again, demand is just so I wanted to like lead off with saying that I think you're absolutely right, but I think those problems are caused by prohibition, whether it be the most dramatic form, which is just complete criminalization, or even forms like Illinois, where it's like it's just there's a cap that's keeping prices high. And as a result, black market operators are filling that void. You know what I mean? Just like they always would. I, I agree with you 100%. I mean, I'm a big believer, and this is not uh, an idea that's unique to me. I'm a big believer that the correct legalization model for cannabis is tomatoes. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, <laughs> Amen. Like, like, right, there's like an FDA structure there. There's the ability, you know, Department of Ag and whatnot that monitors. So if you go to a grocery store and you buy tomatoes, there is a level of expectation, right, that it doesn't have salmonella. It wasn't sitting in cow right. shit like it's it should be healthy and safety, you know, safe. And when it's not, it makes national news. You also have the option to get local tomatoes, you know, from a regional group that maybe doesn't have the same structure, but is still available. You have the farmer's market option, which, you know, you're trusting the farmer. And then you have mm -hmm. the ability to grow the tomatoes in your backyard. Um, I'm a big believer, and I, I know that you are as well, that like home grow is integral to keeping the industry honest. And I say the industry is not just industry participants, but the government organizations and the oversight bodies. Yeah. Um, because I grow better weed than I can buy in most places. There are right. places that have better, but the reality is it's a lot of effort. Most people are lazy and most people will eventually just default to the lowest common denominator. No different than we even see in like craft beer, right? right. It's like, you know, craft beer as like a home brew, like home brewers didn't kill craft beer. In fact, it like accelerated that industry because it made, you know, the ability to be like famous as a home brewer that eventually right. turned it into a craft brewery. Or craft right. Beer brewery. Yeah. 
No, well said. Well said. It like it ended up being like a talent acquisition pool. Uh, right. Which <laughs> you know? industry struggles to find great talent, particularly on the cultivation side. And how, you know, how cool would it be? And I've been to some of these as less than legal operations where you get to go and it's like, these are the people and you get to talk to the person and you get to understand their grow techniques and you get to challenge them on why they don't, why they prefer HPS over LED. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Oh shit, this is awesome. Like, cool. I'll buy your weed. And then you go and smoke and you're like, this shit is the best, but that is (laughs) like, that's not how the vast majority of consumers consume. And I think the laws have to be written in a way that's like realistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the challenge is, and we even saw this with, with Illinois, is the people writing the laws are not either industry participants or even passionate at times or knowledgeable about the industry. And I'll give an example of that. Um, a, a, an associate of mine was part of the recreational um, bill and, and provided feedback and direction. And when they were originally putting together the home grow provisions, um, I believe it was 24 or 25 plants you were going to be allowed to grow. And there was no gifting provision and there was no selling provision. So they were going to allow individual con- you know, people to grow up to 25 plants. When I grow and I grow in a four by four tent with a two by three veg, I try to get between a half, you know, around a half pound per plant, between a QP and a half pound to keep them small. Um, if you're doing that across 25 plants on a perpetual cycle, you're producing more than most humans can consume in a reasonable amount of time. And so like that to me was a really just strong example, circle it back to education, about the lack of education from the retail point all the way up to the people making the laws and how that ultimately just creates a challenging dynamic for everybody trying to participate. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, and I think the reason that makes it that, like you said, that dynamic gets challenging is, is exactly the reason we've not seen any movement on adult use or, or uh, let's say home cultivation for all adults because they still don't know the number so let me just put it this way. I've asked operators and people that like lead trade associations, like, will you back a proposal like home grow? You'd get the support from the community to get whatever you need. You know, you want people to call into the, their legislators, like, here you go. Yeah. And their question was, well, how's that going to affect my market? And so just like you just said, like, if you have 24 plants, is that going to stop you from coming into the dispensary? And my thing is like, Probably not, actually, because if I grow, like, let's say 12 plants of the same strain, I'm going to have a shit ton of the same strain, as you said. And yeah, I'm going to want to mix it up. So I'm going to go to the dispensary to, like, grab an eighth here, grab an eighth there, grab, you know, maybe a vape pen or whatever. Like, home grow is just meant to supplement. The dispensary is meant, the that is the place, yeah, you go to get, like, connoisseur-grade cannabis. I want to try this, this, and that. Like, that's that's how it should be. And then the home grow should just be... You know, something to float you through, like you say, tomatoes. Um, yeah, it's a challenging topic, though. I think because I think, like again, I know you're anti-prohibition at all in any way. Um, at least it's been my my interpretation for the yeah. most part. And I think you know, I, I'd be curious to understand in the tomatoes example where you go from being okay to sell at farmers markets, but you're not licensed to sell to Kroger or Jewel. Like what is that threshold where you're producing enough tomatoes where you're not a backyard grower, but you're now a commercial grower? Because I, I do understand, you know, from a business perspective, if, if I have to pay all the taxes, all the licenses, all the structure, um, 
and somebody else can have, you know, 500 plants and be running a full scale operation, but just selling through farmers markets that there, that is not a competitive landscape. So I'm in favor of there being some structure with that. But I think again, like the reality is that there is a difference between a home grower who communally shares amongst their closest 30 people and somebody who's right. selling weed as an income source. No, but and to your point though, I mean, it's a fair, I think you're springing up a fair, um, you know, people like if you're using the tomato model, yeah. At what point do you need a license? And at what point do people, people feel it's unfair that you're operating without a license? Yep. Right. I mean, it's, I think that's accurate. Now, my only thing is I just hate that part of it. Like, cause I, cause I agree, maybe we should, we should draw a line, but I hate that up until we've drawn that line, the answer is criminal penalties. Yeah. I'm it's just right like, there. man. Yeah. And that's what that's why I get really frustrated with some of these cannabis operators, because I feel like they can cultivate cannabis legally. And if there's anybody that's going to know, like, I mean, if they're going to try to come up with that number, I guess, like they should be able to do it because they they cultivate it legally and they have so much access to the plant, you know. Um, And you'd think just as somebody in the industry, one of them, they'd be at the front of the line like. I view it as fighting for home grow and ending possession limits and stuff like that as fighting for what I deem to be like actual legalization. Cause I just yeah. view, I just view this as decriminalization. Cause that, it, that is what it is. If you're telling me that if I exceed this, then there's criminal penalties. It's like, Oh, okay. So you just decriminalize small amounts. I think it's a fine line. I, I mean, I think, again, there's, I, I think in this discussion, it's important to delineate. There is a threshold, whatever that threshold is, we can debate, but there's a threshold between somebody who is a amateur grower and somebody who is a commercial grower and selling weed for profit. Yes. Um, yeah. And I think that's like, if you're talking to an operator who's genuinely concerned about you and I growing weed in our closet, in our backyard, in our basement, competing with their ability to have a viable business, I would encourage that person to go out of business uh, because that like you have all the resources in the world. In theory, you have professional cultivators, you have better equipment. And if you can't ultimately produce better quality products more consistently at scale than I can in my basement, you shouldn't be doing the job. No different than, you know, again, there's a reason that, you know, Joe's farmer's market, the guy makes enough tomatoes at a high enough quality to sell just to the, those people that come in on Sundays. But if he got a PO from Kroger for, you know, 7,000 pounds of tomatoes, he would not be able to fill it. Like these are just different leagues. Um, and, and so I think the big thing is like first defining some level of threshold that the culture and the capitalism side agrees with is like the difference between a home cultivator and a professional or commercial uh, cultivator. And then that then is the kind of the start for the next steps of the conversation. Yeah. And I think to take it a step further, I just wish that the fines would be in line with like a business offense instead of a criminal offense. Like you were just operating without a license. You're not going to be in a cage. But some business, some business violations do have criminal penalties for the safety of the public. So like if you're operating a restaurant that's unlicensed, that's producing food that is potentially hazardous to people like you, that can be a criminal penalty. I agree with you. I'm not a fan of anyone going to jail for anything other than like rape, murder and uh, like capital offenses, um, you know, for the most part. Um, But and I think, again, like 
we've just lost this ability. And I think our industry is particularly bad about this in terms of finding a reasonable middle ground and then moving on to the next topic. Yeah. It, yeah. I think we're what the re the reason we're running up against a gate. And then I promise we're going back to price compression because we'll, no, we can <laughs> that's the tangent. But, uh, um, I think the reason we're running up against this is because we're trying to come up with a number with folks that have never listened to the government anyways. You know what I mean? Like hundred <laughs> percent. It's like, no, so, in, so it's, to your point, whatever rule they come up with, we're all going to be like, that's fucking stupid. <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, yes and no. But I think though, like, again, like there's going to be people coming out of like the legacy side that are either going to get it or they're not going to get it. Yeah. And I think part of getting it is recognizing that like today, if you're an illegal grower, 15 years ago, you're an illegal grower, like you might be passionate as shit about weed, you might love it, you might all those different things. But mm -hmm. unfortunately, like there's societal structures that are going to keep you from getting home loans. They're going to keep you from if you're a felon doing certain things in life that like you just fundamentally should be able to do. And part of legalization is is the transition from anything goes to some level of structure. And so I think the people who kind of throw their hands up and they're like, I'm just not participating in the legal market, bro. Like at the end of the day, like you're just not going to get those people like to come up to that speed, no different than you're not going to get the people who are on the extreme, you know, conservative side of the argument, like we should never be legal in any form. Any, and it's just like, okay, like I'm at fundamentally talking to the fringe 10% on both <laughs> right. sides. And that's not where I want to spend my time. I'd rather be with the 80% of the people yeah. in the middle that are like much more reasonable. And mm -hmm. I think that transcends even cannabis, right? Like that transcends, I mean, even again, I've, I've found your interesting on sex or your work on sex work interesting as well, where it's just like, there is middle ground on every topic. If you're approaching things with like empathy to the other side and like the desire to find a solution that you can both live with. Yeah. Thank you for mentioning my series on sex work. I, I doesn't get the credit it deserves. <laughs> I love it. It's, it's an interesting topic. I mean, yeah. it, it really is. Yeah. Well, anyways, I actually pulled up a, a very short clip that I think provides like my definition of price compression. And I think it matches with what you were saying earlier. So if people forgot, maybe this will jog our memory because sure. we've been on a longer tangent. I wanted yeah. to check when this interview is from. It's from May 8th, 2020. It's featuring uh, Ben Kovler from GTI. So okay. here there we go. We saw and I read uh, Governor Quinn signed a law in 2013 for the medical cannabis pilot program. And I read the law one day and it looked a lot to me like the gaming industry where there were limited licenses for a lot of demand. And that set up as a nice business opportunity. And so I dove in in a diligence project to study as much as I could about the industry, traveled to Denver uh, and decided that the business made sense uh, to invest in. Um, and then along the way, I've learned a ton about the product and the people and other things that we may talk about that, that have really generated a, a lot of momentum and things. But that's sort of my background of a finance lens uh, out in California of seeing the industry and seeing it come to the viability um, and diving all the way in. So uh, we're going to stay a little bit more in the well, that actually doesn't have one of the parts that I was specifically talking about, which he talks about price compression. I've got the quote written down, though. He says, which is what I felt backed up what you said earlier. The core of the brand matters. So Fiji water gets major price protection around that brand and we can do the same in cannabis. And we think that's where you invest. 
So I think that's interesting. Like that's that's how they that's how that the companies view price compression from a brand perspective. I felt like that was backing up what you were saying earlier. Cause as a consumer, I think about it from a different perspective. I think about it as like, what's the general price of an ounce? <laughs> you know what I mean? For like, sure. I, I think though, like what you're keying on there is like the crux of the challenge of cannabis over the next couple of years. And I think, um, you know, I'm biased. I'm a former employee of GTI, but um, Ben and Anthony who, who, who run Green Thumb, I think have done a phenomenal job in executing on the strategy that they laid out there. I think when I, um, there's certainly improvements, but when I think of Incredibles, when I think some of the transitions I've even seen on, you know, Rhythm and, you know, the last year, Dog Walkers, you know, some of these groups, those are recognizable brands within their markets. I mean, Incredibles was the first commercially available edible I ever had. Mile High Mint Bar out in Denver many years ago. Yeah. Um, Dog Walkers, I think, is maybe the only free roll brand that people, at least in Illinois, are like tip of the tongue. Yes, I, you know, I, that's like the first one. And I think the, the role of the brand is to really help. I mean, the whole idea of, of, of what a brand is, is to make the consumer shopping experience easier because you're able to look at this relatively undifferentiated product set and draw your eyes to the brand that your your experience has led you up to believe is going to deliver the value that you're looking for. And one of the big things that I would emphasize, and this is something that we talk about with our brand partners all the time, is value is an equation. It's utility divided by price. Utility is the big piece there. So somebody who consumes, you know, and, and this is these are just generalizations, but like you and I have been smoking weed a long time. We've always bought weed out of a clear plastic bag or a jar or whatever it is. And so mm -hmm. there isn't brand. Your, you ascribe value based off of purely that consumption experience. Uh, you know, the only thing that maybe was out there back in the day is, can you stick the nug to the window of the car if it sticks? You buy it. If it doesn't, you, you pass. Um, but like, aside from that kind of like old school stuff, there was no brand. The idea of a brand in the future of cannabis is to make it easier for consumers to make choices about what is most going to what is going to most closely align with the value equation that they're looking for. And so when you are looking at product as undifferentiated, highest THC, highest terpene to lowest dollar, that is one way of evaluating the brand. But you're going to then have to have a labor intensive time anytime you go to shop for cannabis, right? Because you're going to have to really look at the labs. Access to lab reports and dispensaries is abysmal. And I think one of the easiest things to fix in our industry right now, but you're going to have to ask for labs. You're going to have to really trust the bud tenders and you're ultimately your consumption experience is going to take fundamentally longer than it's going to take for you to pick out ditch detergent because you're a Dawn guy, you've been a Dawn guy your whole life. And when you walk up, you know that Dawn's going to be what you need. You don't have to analyze the set. Yeah, That's what brands are ultimately supposed to do for consumers is make it easier for them to identify the consumption experience, the value prop that they're looking for and get drawn into that. And that's what really staves off price compression because if you're just looking at highest THC to lowest dollar, there's no moat. And I think one of the things that, Ben, because I've heard that interview, one of the things that Ben talks about is the moat of limited license markets and why that's important to their strategy is because every business, every business needs a moat. The coal memo needs a moat. Seed talent needs a moat. Because if there's no moat, there's no barrier to entry, then you have, in theory, limitless competition. And, and 
that just creates a challenging dynamic to grow a business. Yeah. Yeah. But it's, it's, uh, I, I agree with you that that's the, uh, the, the moat idea. Another way he said it is why go play in a knife fight when you could go sit at the beach. Uh, the phraseology on that is is certainly interesting. I um, mean, it's but it's it's right because it's like open, unfettered. Just everybody gets a license. It's pretty cutthroat. Yeah, the prices go down, and so yeah, why go play in a knife fight when you can go sit at the beach? You know, and it's maybe it's not yeah. still the beach. I think is your point. It's not like it's just all la di da, but but I mean that's straight from his mouth. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I'd argue that it's definitely not the beach. And I think all of the, I mean, we've seen contraction from most of the major operators this year. I think they're learning, you know, and, and growing to understand it's it's not the beach. But I also think, you know, I understand to a certain extent the sediment um, from the standpoint of, you know, if, if you've been out to California and really gotten deep into that market, it literally was cutthroat at times. I mean, yeah. It, you know, there, there was, you know, Emerald Triangle has not been an easy place to operate, you know, for quite some time. Denver was having issues with a wide variety of both uh, shady operators and illegal cartels um, that were affecting the industry. And so, yes, it certainly would be easier to go into a market that has more structure for people that are looking to operate more traditional style cannabis businesses. Yeah. And to just more to your point, um, shout shout out to the Chilinoy podcast. Um, on July 4th, 2020, Mike Fouché sat down for an interview on the Chilinoy podcast. And sometime around, we've got a history document if you're wondering where I'm pulling some of this stuff from. That's awesome. Um, sometime around 27 minutes in Mike mentions that many people in finance question whether or not cannabis, the cannabis industry is profitable in the short term or in the long term. He goes on to say that he hears that most people running cannabis companies are running them with the expectation that they'll make their money when they sell their operation. Um, I don't necessarily agree with that. That was a long time ago too. I mean, 2020, but, but, but. What about, sorry, the just setting that last part aside, yeah, if it's profitable in the short term or the long term with everything that's going on, I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, this this is an issue that I think um, spans a lot of discussion. Um, you know, again, I like no BS, I've, I've, I've watched your content for, for quite some time. And I, you know, one of the things that we're really passionate about is supporting entry-level workers in cannabis. And... Mm-hmm. I hear a lot of entry-level workers in cannabis talking about the profits that these big profiteers are making at these, you know, big MSOs and these big groups. And while there's a lot of money moving through these businesses, and one of the best arguments is, well, they're not making money because they're inefficient. And that argument is sound in certain instances, there's no question. But the reality is, too, as we referred to on 280E, many of these businesses will be profitable the moment they can deduct you know, 30%, you know, or or so of their revenue as it relates to internal expenses. I mean, most people, again, I I just truly don't believe, really understand the economic challenges of 280E safe banking, these different things. Access to capital, you're generally paying higher rates than anyone else. Mm -hmm. And from the fact that you can't expense things, the only thing you can expense is a cog. So cost of goods sold. So if you buy an item, um, and this again, you'll have to stop me if I get too far into the weeds. I've been hitting this hashtag most of the call. Um, but but um, most pricing in Illinois is 
what's called keystoning. So if you buy an item for $50 at the dispensary, the dispensary most likely bought that for $25. Right. Um, the only thing that they can then deduct in that transaction is the $25 cost of that item. They can't deduct the labor that it took um, to hand you the item, stamp the item, do all the compliance. They can't deduct the you know, security within the business. They can't deduct the computer they process the transaction on. They can't deduct the rent of the business. I mean, that's outrageous. If there's small business owners that are on, you know, that are listening um, to the conversation, just imagine basically none of the things that you expense through your business, you can expense. And so for, for, I think a lot of these folks, I think exit and sale was something that when it was like green rush, everybody thinks, you know, you can't lose money in, in cannabis. There was a lot of really shitty operators that came in. They thought they were going to throw up, you know, some shitty celebrity brand or something like that, and then turn it around to sell it. And you'd always say, well, sell it to who? And they'd be, oh, one of the big CPGs, bro. And it's like, that's like not how that really works. You have to build massive scale to be picked up in traditional CPG because ultimately what they're buying is a brand with massive scale, not your shitty packaging and your low quality product. Um, I think what ultimately a lot of the MSOs that are still operating successfully have come to understand is they actually have businesses that in theory could be hyper profitable. As soon as some of these changes occur from a you know a financial and regulatory standpoint, and I think that's why you're starting to see. I mean, Green Thumb has positive EBITDA, um, you know, that's really exciting. You're seeing some other Chicago-based operators who have gotten to a level of efficiency where they are producing free cash flow from their businesses, even in the constraints that they have today. So if I'm an investor, whether a retail investor um, or a, a big time investor, these people are achieving profitability in an environment that I frankly think most CPG folks <laughs> couldn't last five minutes. in, And we see that by the number of folks that come in to some of these companies at high executive levels and literally don't last five minutes because they just fundamentally can't believe the regulatory environment and the financial constraints that's on this business. I mean, I've talked to marketers that have come from Miller Coors and some of these big groups they they have and I, I i've talked to both sides of the fence their folks have come in from traditional cpg they're passionate about the plant they're passionate about the people who consume it they're willing to learn and change they knock it out of the park dozens and dozens of those examples and i have equally as many examples if not more of people who came in and they didn't give a shit about the plant they didn't give a shit about the people who consume it and they didn't even have the understanding, skill set, or flexibility to roll with the challenges that are this industry, um, and, and that's what I think is is most exciting from my lens. You know, my lens on things is is we're seeing some of the best, savviest business operators out there do something that is really challenging with mixed results. Yeah. Yeah, and I just want to throw a wrinkle into this discussion. I recently read an article. Um, uh, by Brad Spearson, speaking of grown in, yeah, uh, this is the second time we've mentioned Brad now on the show, <laughs> Brad, I hope you're listening. Your ears are probably red. Um, so he said, <laughs> uh, a venture capitalist I sat down with recently explained her desire to invest in startups focused on converting federally legal hemp into something that can get you high. The federal government, she surmised, unintentionally legalized cannabis with the 2018 Farm Bill. We are most interested in companies who can exploit this at scale. Brad says, this statement is significant on at least two fronts. First off, 
venture capitalists have been avoiding the cannabis sector for the last 18 months. Any interest in the plant, novel variations or otherwise, is a signal that investor sentiment is warming back up to an industry that normalizes by the day. Secondly, if, at least as far as this investor is concerned, there is no putting the Delta-8 hemp-derived THC genie back in the bottle. Even if provisions in the upcoming farm bill attempt to modify today's Kafka-esque status quo, where some parts of the plant are federally legal and restricted in multiple states, while other variations are federally illegal but sanctioned in nearly 40 states, there will always be workarounds, and at the end of the day, consumers will continue to flock towards legally accessible weed. My question is, it seems like, just come back, back to price compression, it seems like yeah, this yeah. is this has become the most it's like funny i've been like bitching about limited licenses for like a few years now and look we can you know people i've disagreed with many people on this subject i've disagreed with people that actually like want the same outcome but they see a different way of getting to it so it's okay everybody can have their different but i think it's funny how this wasn't even on my radar and it seems to have become the most the strongest challenge of that of the limited license system if i could just quickly say what i mean by that is so you know this issue's popped up and feel free to like you know say it from your side of this too but this issue's popped up and i i hosted a panel between people in the hemp derived cannabinoid space and people in the cannabis industry in illinois that are basically we had a discussion about what should be the answer to this. And it seemed like the cannabis operators were saying that the CRTA gave them the ability to uh, sell intoxicating cannabinoids in the farm bill is so that you can make uh, or so, sorry, industrial, if you get a industrial hemp license, then it's just that it's only for industrial purposes. You can't make any that are, you know, intoxicating. Um, and so these concerns seem to have come from like this story in Uptown where these high schoolers kind of ate edibles yeah, or whatever. But then, you know, there's there's a lot of other concerns about these products not being subject to the same testing, taxing, labeling, and age requirements. So some of these hemp operators came up with a bill where they would be subject to the same taxing, testing, um, age requirements, labeling, all that. And basically, and I brought that up during the panel, and basically the participants in the cannabis industry said no because it would dilute the value of the license and that these license limitations and everything that that like if we were just to give all these licenses to hemp operators that we would have price compression and everything that we've been talking about this entire time and so it's just interesting I, i'm just curious what do you think about this whole hemp I know I just threw a lot at you. What do you think about this whole hemp thing that's come up? And also, do you agree with me that it seems like it's like one of the things that actually seems to be almost not not yet, but almost throwing a wrench in this limited license system? Uh, I definitely agree with that last statement that it's throwing a wrench into the system. I mean, I think anytime I'm I'm looking at policy changes or these types of things, I always get back to the question that we talked about in the first few minutes, which is who does it serve? Obviously, if I own a THC-based dispensary today, I don't want more competition. 
Like that is so logical that it's, it should never be. And like one thing that I have is just like a general rule of thumb is like that if, is this, if somebody is acting selfishly, which I think sometimes sounds bad, but selfishly also can just mean in your own self-interest, I can rationalize that immediately because that is kind of how people are, right? Generally people are self-interested. And so when somebody says something like, I own a cannabis dispensary license and I don't want additional license or additional people to be able to compete with me, I say, thank you for your perspective. That makes a ton of sense from your perspective. I believe that the rules and the regs and the laws should really be focused on what's best for consumers. That's to me is like the role of government in regulating trade should be in consumer protection, consumer interest. That's one bucket of it. The second bucket is like just hemp and, and the challenges that are associated with that. And, you know, I was just up in Minnesota um, last week. Um, they have probably one of the most unique structures around cannabis laws that you can have in the country in terms of being able to buy basically anything five milligrams or less and with any license that allows the sale of alcohol. Um, I also believe in consumer free choice and free will and the ability for you to get what you want. But I also have driven a car and realized how dumb the general populace is at so many things, just watching people's inability to follow basic traffic rules and regulations. Um, and I say that a little bit tongue in cheek, um, but like government, I think, should do things within reason to protect the people. Protect is a really dangerous word because things can happen super bad and super fast in the name of protecting people. Um, but the idea that you can go buy a thousand milligram hemp derived, you know, e even Delta nine chocolate bar from a gas station is unsafe and inappropriate in my opinion, not because I wouldn't know how to consume it, not because you wouldn't know how to consume it, but the vast majority of people have never been educated on this. And I think the challenge, because sometimes people make the parallel to alcohol. Well, you know, alcohol, you can do all these things. Alcohol, you can overdose. But alcohol has a hundred years of culture and cultural and societal norms associated with it, such that people see their parents or their grandparents, you know, having a glass of wine from the time they can even remember to, you know, the time they decide whether they're 15 years old or 21 years old to start consuming. And I think, Cannabis, true cannabis passionate folks have to understand and accept where the country is at today and be a part of shepherding it, shepherding it into the societal acceptance of tomorrow. And so if there is, to me, it's, you know, the, the solution is some rules and regulations around labeling requirements, education, where you can sell, sell to minors, the, basically the same regulations that are out there as it relates to vape. Uh, you, you know, or, or some of these other things that, that you know, are, are potentially newer entrants to the vice markets. Let's start that because I agree that cannabis shouldn't be more penalized than tobacco and nicotine. But let's start with the same regulation as that that's there. Hold then folks accountable for the safety standards that are going to ultimately put consumer and patient safety first. And then let's let the market decide, do people derive more value from going to the dispensary than they do from, you know, 7-Eleven and buying the shit, you know, from over there. And I think that's one of the big passion pieces for me that really frustrates me about this industry is because there's so many challenges with compliance rules and regulations, people then decide 
that that can then be the, the scapegoat for all of their ineffectiveness as a business. And you can't legislate your way into being a good operator. You either are or you aren't. And if you are, you will adjust with the changes in the regulations and you will produce so much value in your customer coming to your dispensary that they will drive past a 7-Eleven, a GNC, and a Sarah's Health Food Shops that all sell, sell you know, health food stuff because you've created a destination for consumers that adds sufficient value to then ultimately supplement that price. Yeah. Yeah, dude. I mean, to your point, I'm looking at this drink that I've been drinking. Like I got it from uh, the Benny's and it's a cannabis derived, it's a hemp derived drink with 25 milligrams of THC in it. It's like, now and if talking. that actually slapped like a 25 milligram, like real full dose, and you were Joe average consumer who, you know, smoked weed a couple times in high school, you would probably not be safe driving. home. Yeah, but but you're not. And so it's totally fine. And that's the reality of the challenge that I think we're working. to. Yeah, no, fair enough. I wasn't I was just bringing that up to your point of uh to your point of access. Like if these dispensaries yeah. are um, worried about like access just like compete on that like it's just convenient for me to go and grab this drink and that's the reason i did it you know if it was more convenient at the dispensary i would but back to your point i mean i get it for sure i mean i literally had this guy on this show and he's gonna roll out a hundred milligram drink and he's one of his main concerns is like yeah how do we do this so what's cool is the way he's approaching it is like the standard can size is a standard dose like 10 milligrams yeah then you got this skinny can that's 25 milligrams and then the 100 milligrams is probably going to be like a tall boy or something like that yep. so it's like indicative and kind of they're trying to set that standard that you were just yep. talking about and um you know, I get what you're saying. Somebody grabs the wrong can. Um, and I hate to use the exact point that you said I was going to use, but like, yeah, like as far as anything that you can buy in Benny's, that would be the least of my concerns of people walking out with, you know. Without a doubt, but right, there's know. cultural context around yeah. consuming whiskey or grain alcohol. Um, I don't know this person, but I've been following their entrepreneurial journey for a while. And I, I know I'm only a couple of connections away, um, but there's a new seltzer brand that's come up in the last couple of years called System Seltzer. Um, mm. It's a Chicago based group. The guy who's one of the founders, Anthony Spina, Spina um, I've, I've never met him, not a plug, don't, but whatever. Yeah. I followed his entrepreneurial journey because he saw an opportunity within the NA space where similar to like what... Uh, whatever the hell the, the water company is that uh, everybody loves because they're in the cans. Um, uh, you know, liquid death. Liquid death. Similar yeah. to liquid death, I think he recognized an opportunity where it's like people want to have NA, but they don't want to stand out and look like they're, you know, the loser drinking, you know, a bottle of water in the corner. Mm -hmm. So he's got, they're the exact same cans of seltzer, but you can get 0%, like 2%, 5%, and like 8% alcohol. Mm. Like, and, and then there's levels of education that happen on the box to like help you understand how you can consume this, how can, how it can fit like your consumption pattern. I think creative solutions like that are, are really interesting ways where it's like, if, if the dude you had on the show had a gigantic sticker on the top that said mm -hmm. like high dose proceed with caution, like normal dose is one tenth of this, yeah. like that then is some step towards education. And again, there's so much education that circles back in these conversations. And 
again, I'm not like a traditional learning and development person, but I couldn't be more passionate about what we're doing at SeedTalent because almost every conversation that we've had has looped back to insufficient education of somebody involved in the process leading to an outcome that is negatively Bingo. impacting the industry. Bingo. I was about to say that that's that's the outcome. That's like your worst fear, right? Somebody takes somebody takes something based on their incorrect understanding of something and then creates this, you know how it is. It could create this scary headline and it's like, hold on a second, you know. No, no different than the headline from the kids up in the, in the north side of the city. It's like, you know, kids dosed, sending to ER, like overdosed on, on cannabis. It's like you and I saw that and said, yeah, for sure. Like, I'm sure they were super overdosed on this thing that you can't overdose on. Right. Um, and then it's, but it's like every step in that process, there was lack of education, lack of education on the kids, lack of education on the people who sold them the product, lack of education for the reporter who wrote the story, like mm -hmm. so much lack of education. Um, and that's why we, I think, have had the success that we've had, albeit we're like in the first inning, um, is, is the ability to be able to just get people to say, you know what, my staff, I, this industry could use more knowledge. If we can just agree on that, that's an awesome spot to find common ground. Yeah. Well said. Well said. Yeah. So, um, what, what have you tried any of these hemp products? Have you ever? Yeah, I, um, in fact, Somewhere around here, we just got some from a, uh, a customer who is um, a THC legal. And this is one of the other sides of the coin is a lot of these national brands are now switching to a version that has hemp derived so, um, as well. Right. Then that's what I was about to say. I actually pulled up a tweet from a really you probably know this dude, Chris Becker from Honeybee Collective. Uh, I don't know if you know him. I don't I don't know him. Yeah. He's he's cool. Cool guy. He's been on the show a few times and he basically tweeted the other day. He said, just talk to a bank that will take deposits from and providing. Sorry, restart that. Just talk to a bank that will take deposits from and provide funding for farm bill authorized businesses including those that sell thca hemp he said between that the farm bill extension state prohibitions on hemp being decimated in court the hemp space is almost irresistible and you know all those things you were talking about earlier 280e taxes go down the list hemp <laughs> Um, yeah, I'm just, yeah. that's interesting to hear that you've heard the same thing where these big operators, I mean, we've seen it, uh, cookies is in the hemp space. GTI, you could say is indirectly in the hemp space because can the drink that they, yeah. the brand that they sponsor is in Minnesota. Yeah. You know? yeah no, there's, there's truth to that. I mean, um, select has, has some hemp um, products that are out in the market. Um, yeah, again, I think it's going to be an interesting avenue to do that. Um, I think it's also an interesting conversation, though, between some of these brands and some of the retail partners. If I'm a dispensary operator that then is watching this brand that I've helped build sell direct to consumer um, and basically cut me out of that transaction, I'm having a very different relationship with that brand moving forward. Um, and again, I think there's so many different parallels of this outside of the industry. Uh, but it's like if you're a retail partner and you're working with a brand, that is a relationship. And you as a retail partner have to do a great job representing that brand, a great job educating on that brand. But in return, there is a responsibility of that brand 
to look out for the retail partner and to be a good partner. And I think some of the conversation that is insufficiently being had is while this is really good for some of the brands, particularly in their need to get capital, it's really potentially negative if I'm a consumer of tablet A and um, I've been going to dispensary A to buy that for the last five years. And all of a sudden I can now buy it online direct to consumer and I'm no longer going in and supporting that retail partner. That's an interesting challenge as a retailer, I think, to overcome. And it gets yeah. back to the value of if you're just handing people product across the counter and that's your retail strategy, you will be going out of business. It's not if, it's when. Yeah, but some of these things that you're talking, like I feel like the that idea, the idea of dealing with the difficulties of purchasing it online and the difficulties of having to like just fight against everybody that once they have the ability to participate are inevitabilities that we're having to deal with in society. And we're like trying to stave them off through these artificial restrictions. Yes. I think that's so true for so many things that are going on. Yeah. even outside. It's like, of I don't get, it's like, I understand. I understand when go, I was going to play the clip of governor Pritzker explaining why we've limited licenses earlier because we want to keep it profitable. In other words, prevent price compression. Like I get it. I just, I think it's like, what are we, are we being silly to pretend that it's like other states are preparing like Oregon and California. And I know they're much more mature than us. I know that that's like probably a valid point to bring up, but they're preparing for like an export market. You know, they've, they're, they're just waiting for the coal memo to no longer be a thing. And I don't mean the show. I mean the guidance that prevents them from, from exporting. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, the largest, the largest cultivator in California has funded their entire grow operation on pitch decks that talk about cross country sale. Really? I think one of the things that is fascinating about that discussion though, is it'll be easier and more profitable in theory to grow weed in places that it naturally should occur Central America, South America, some of those places. Mm -hmm. And that's where if you look at the cannabis market in South America, for the most part, those that that continent is being set up as an export market to grow large volumes of outdoor cannabis, process it into distillate or isolates, and then ship that product across the world. And that's where I think some of these groups, again, that are coming to market with just purely isolate or distillate based products um, and believe that that is a differentiated product are going to run into challenges. Absolutely. Yeah. Another one, I don't even know if you know about this. We can we can start to close here pretty soon, but this is another thing I read on Twitter that I thought was interesting the other day. I, I don't know anything about intellectual property. I just want to say that really quick, sure. but they say, let's not forget the tricky situation of protecting a cannabis business intellectual property. For goods or services that are plant touching, marks cannot be registered because of federal scheduling in the CSA. Registrants must show that their desired mark relates to a product or service that has a use beyond cannabis. Hemp was legalized. You know where this is going. A, can a business creating products or services related to hemp would be able to register a mark. Those pro it says those products or services might also be used in the inhalation or topical application of cannabis. Again, that's getting a little bit too granular. I don't. I can't speak to that. But just on the face. The idea that 
so I texted that to somebody and they said, get your hemp license and just start registering uh, a bunch of copyrights for, for cannabis things. Like just start squatting on little terms. There goes, there goes the idea. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I don't know. It's kind of an interesting thought. I'm just sitting here. No, I mean, I think, I think a lot of the stuff that we've talked about today is kind of just the myriad of challenges created by right. the compliance, the regulation, and again, I think so much of that stuff ties back to the education of the people who are making these laws. And I think that, again, the big the big thing, and I would, and I don't know how to phrase this in a way that doesn't sound like weird, but um, I would encourage you, because I know you talk to a lot of legislators and things like that. There's one question, whether you're talking to operators, legislators, that puts people back a little bit and gets a real answer, which is, who does this serve? And yeah. it's not like, you know finger wag who does this serve it's like a general like so really understand that appreciate that so you know who does this serve so if you can't register a trademark for you know a cannabis brand who benefits from it yeah and and the the, the honest god response is literally no one <laughs> yeah um, yeah or like the the only reasonable answer is like it benefits these large CPG companies that are essentially going to steal these trademarks from brands that are already built. There's a conspiracy theory that I actually find extremely intriguing um, about the legalization challenges and why safe banking has been so slow um, that, so I'm a big believer in follow, follow the money. Um, the vast majority of illegalization has been funded by pharmaceutical companies in the industrial prison complex. Um, that has been the case for quite some time. But one of the other conversations or discussions or things that's going on around the, the particularly the tax structure, particularly some of these things, is that these are designed to stress the market, understand what works, where works, what doesn't work put out business, put businesses out of business that are, are not in a certain mold. And then that will essentially create an acquisition funnel of sound businesses to, to be bought by big elk, big CPG and big pharma. And then what do they do? They turn on the, the, uh, you know, the lobbying machine, change all the regulations that fuck these businesses over after they've had basically the market proven out by an outside operator. Um, and, it's a compelling argument in the sense that when you say, who does this serve? A lot of the answers start to link back and you're like, and again, I, I'm not like as conspiracy theory as, as some, but it, when, you, when it's logical and when you follow the pattern and when you're so in, invested in the industry, like we are, you see these things. And I even get back to like Monsanto. Um, Monsanto and Scott's are the largest cannabis operators in the world. Um, they are investors in cannabis businesses. They are investors and owners in um, in cultivation centers. Cultivate, you know, they have are collecting so much data on all these different strains, all these different things. When you get back to intellectual property, one of the things that Monsanto is known for, and if folks aren't aware of this, I would encourage you know smoke a couple joints, not one, a couple because it's so depressing, um, and go read about Monsanto um, patenting their genetics. And then what they do is they sue these farmers all over the world, all over the country for stealing their genetics because a bee went from one spot to the other and carried their genetics. That's the shit that scares you know, the hell out of me about this industry. And that's where I get a lot of frustration. Um, while I understand the arguments, I get a lot of frustration 
and I, I do not absolve some of the operators of some of the things they've done. There are things that have been inexcusable and or excusable in the sense that these people are operating sometimes the biggest businesses they've ever ran and are fundamentally gigantic startups. And as somebody who's founded a startup, it is really difficult. And I don't think enough people talk about how difficult it is. But the reality is the people who are operating these businesses today, the biggest ones are shit stains on the scale of some of these multinational conglomerates that are ultimately CPG, big outback, big pharma. And I think if our industry, and maybe this is a nice kind of segue towards the end of the conversation, um, if our industry doesn't educate itself on our industry, doesn't advocate for what is good for all with an understanding of how it affects and who benefits, we're gonna get crushed by real big business as soon as any meaningful change happens in, in legalization. And that's one of the passion points for me is I want us to build an industry together that's so strong, that's so defensible, that is so backed and rooted in education that it's not just a matter of slapping a Coca-Cola label over can and then you're on to the next thing, but that we've built a community to go full circle here where people go, we're going to buy from those legacy brands. We're, and by legacy brands, it could still be the Crescos and the GTIs because in the grand scheme of things, it's legacy in comparison to Frito-Lay and Pepsi. Um, and people are going to advocate and look out and they're going to support dispensaries that are adding value. They're going to support their neighbor that's home growing and learning how to do the process. And we're going to get back to the point that the best thing that people talk about with cannabis is the community of people that it serves and the community of people that serve it. Well said. Well, Kurt, uh, I'd love to have you back on the show in the future. Um, you know, I'd love to if, come back. This is cool. my favorite shit to talk about. Sweet. I was going to say, I had a good time today. I was hoping that you did too. Yeah, so, definitely. Cool. Well, folks, I hope you found as much value in this conversation as I did. Uh, you know, as far as all this goes, Kurt, you know, if you don't hear from me, but you have something that you'd like to talk about before before you hear from me just holler. And uh, if not, you'll hear from me again. We'll, we'll definitely chop it up and smoke some more on the uh, Cole memo. So yeah, absolutely. Sounds good. Thank you, sir. Yeah. It's been a pleasure. We'll see you in the next episode. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.